Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hey, Brett. What up, Em? Oh, okay. Give me a little... You know, it's what that up? part of the day, I'm just feeling, we just got done doing a tour with some yeah. Baylor students, and I'm just feeling frisky. You feeling frisky? Not sexually, <laughs> I'm just feeling frisky relationally. You're just excited. You're I'm just ready like, to go. You're just here for it. You're, Let's do this. You're here for the fun. And I love, I'm like, we're sitting next to each other on the couch, we which are. is not normally the case. That's true. We usually sit across from each other, but we have a phone guest with us, and this was the most natural way, technically, to set up the phone and the mics and all that. And it is kind of fun sitting right next to you. I have a question for you. Go for it. So for the listeners, we wear headphones. I don't, just so we can hear each other, (laughs) but you have on some really significant earrings. They're hoops. It's a hoop day. Does that hurt? Uh, With the headphones on? Yep. I don't feel it. Because one of them's kind of kinked out like. Oh, is it? It's kind of a side hoop. Okay. I keep staring at it and I'm like. (laughs) It's no, you do you. If it, no, you? it's not. But I might stare at it the whole to, time. You know, I need to work through that or I know, something. I don't thing. know. Are you anti-hoop? I just want to make sure you're not hurting. <laughs> I, I'm okay. I can handle my hoop. I'm trying to go to my two-space and yeah. think about you. Thanks. Thanks for mentioning it. Okay. Um, all right. Well, guys, we are so excited to have um, a new friend and guest author on the podcast today. Um I'm really excited because the way that I got to know this person is through a mutual friend who is a survivor leader advocate, Harmony, who you can go back and listen to Harmony on one of our first podcasts that we did, the Jesus I Love podcast, who Harmony runs Treasures LA. And this guest is a deep soul sister with Harmony, who anybody who's soul sisters with Harmony, I'm pretty much game for. I just, she is a great... um, she has a good BS meter on on people. So mm, I love it. <laughs> so the third voice, the laughter you're hearing on the other end <laughs> is our guest, Ash Abercrombie. Woo! And we are so glad you're here, Ash. Um, you are the author of a new book that's out called Rise of the Truth Teller. So how's it going? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. And I actually had to mute myself listening to you talk about all that friskiness and side hoops and you going to, I'm, I'm an eight married to a two. So I feel like I completely understand that that full dialogue. That's hilarious. That is hilarious. Oh my gosh. Hey, Ash, where are you from? I know you're calling us from Dallas right now, but where are you, where do you originate from? So I was born and raised North Carolina, lived in Los Angeles for 15 years. And then my husband and I and our two little boys who are two and five have been in New York City for three years, just a little over three. Yeah. 
It's so amazing. that's all kinds of American swag right there. You yeah, know, like little Southeast, little West Coast, little East Coast. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, and and out in LA is where you met Harmony and you were a part mm-hmm. of kind of the startup of Treasures LA, correct? I was. So Treasures is near and dear to my heart. I'm on their executive board and I was actually with them on the very first outreach we ever did in LA and have just been so thrilled to watch what God has done. I mean, being in a hundred cities on six continents, I mean, just to watch 15 years of faithfulness and the seeds that get sown in the quiet place when no one is watching and to see how they've harvested is really powerful. So I I love treasures. And of course I love harmony. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Well, you're an author. You have this podcast called, um, is it Why Though? It's called Why Though. And, yes, and it is. I reference. I, I gave you guys a shout out because you had a great podcast um, concerning women, and I thought mm-hmm. it was really, really good. A great conversation. Um, you you are self described as having an unrelenting passion for justice, particularly with anti trafficking work and mass incarceration initiatives. Mm-hmm. And like for the past fifteen years, you have been working among and doing um, urban ministries in several different social justice sectors, which um, is just really fascinating to me about mm-hmm. your life. So how, what, what kind of drew you into the justice work and initiatives that you're a part of? That's such a great question. So I think, you know, when you're little, you don't always understand what's happening or perhaps the little seeds of calling that you might see in your life. But I was raised obviously by my parents, my mom and I'm um, especially. And then my great, great aunt Jerry was the only believer in my family who went to church. And so when I was a very little girl, she would take me with her to church every single Sunday. And so through that process, she you know, would go visit the sick and the shut-ins, you know, and that's Mm. just fancy Baptist talk for people who can't (laughs) leave the house or who are shut up in the hospital. And so we would go make sandwiches and deliver flowers. And just like, she really taught me that faith was not just this thing that we do at church on Sunday, but it exists outside. And our whole purpose in being here is to love God and to love people. Mm. And so I didn't really understand that sort of foundational thing that was built into me, but I was in Los Angeles and working in the entertainment industry. I was just an executive assistant and like an acquisitions department of a big film house. And my boss offered me the opportunity to take over a department. And at the very same time, my faith community that I'd been a part of for close to 10 years also was offering me a job as the outreach pastor. Mm. And at that point, I had been serving with treasures for a really long time. So my heart for anti-human trafficking initiatives was really growing. And then my own story of surviving sexual assault and knowing the pain Mm. of exploitation and, you know, just, just, I felt a deep connection to that work. And I had also done a lot of recovery work. So I have 16 years recovery under my belt and have led lots of women through all kinds of things. And so somehow my world's mashed up when I decided to say no to the entertainment job and yes to the outreach pastor job. Mm. And I just had this crazy knack for for it. I mean, mm. even though I didn't have anything on my resume that would lead people to believe I would be good at this work, mm. it was awesome. I just found so much favor in working across multiple sectors for change. So whether it was education or working with, you know, first responders and law enforcement, but also working with people on the ground and building bridges in the community and working with business owners and other churches. And I just found this real deep seated collaboration that lived in me and a deep desire to make the neighborhood whole. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of how it started was, was that job. I mean, it had got had been brewing it in me the whole time, you know, but that was like the perfect intersection of my life and my calling. 
Well, and I don't want to gloss over something you just mentioned and that is very prevalent throughout the book, and I think you do a great job um, really telling your story. The book is called Rise of the Truth Teller, Own Your Story, Mm -hmm. Tell It Like It Is, and Live with Holy Gumption. And just (laughs) as an overview, my, my perspective on this book is that you take us through a very micro lens, a very personal kind of look at your Mm -hmm. own story and really becoming um, accepting of of what it truly is so that it can lead to this bigger call, you know? And so what I don't want to gloss over is that you just mentioned, um, because I'm a survivor of sexual assault, then Mm -hmm. that seed was there and I was able to relate. And you talk about this, um, in your book. And so Mm -hmm. I just want to read, um, I just want to read a little bit, and then I want you to to color it a little bit for us as well. Or um, you said things came to a head right before my second year of college. Our dorm hosted kids for athletic camps during the summer. The coaches were students from other universities who stayed all summer. In that mix was a guy I didn't know well, other than saying hello in the lobby and seeing him out at night. Sometimes dancing with our crew. There was a nightclub next to campus that unfortunately turned a blind eye to underage drinking. And then you go on and you like let you go, let me pause here. (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh oh, here we go. Let me pause here and say this. Violence against women and sexual exploitation do not happen in isolation. They are endorsed and encouraged with community support. Mm. Mm -hmm. In the case of sexual assault, they don't just want to take a body. They want to take a voice. So let so take us back to because assaults on college campuses we know yeah. are rampant right now and you yep. you have a voice in that and you have found your voice even while it it was tried to to be taken not just only from that community but but from your offender so yeah you have so much wisdom to share in this issue um can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about What's happening in our culture at large as you look through the lens of your story as a survivor and what that means about sexual violence at large? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one in every five women is sexually assaulted while in college in America. And I think that statistic is unbearably low because mm. I only know two women in my life who have ever reported. And I know nearly every one of my woman in my life has experienced an unwanted sexual experience or has been fully sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important to recognize that it's the most underrated underreported crime in our country. Yeah. And, you know, more than 90% of sexual assault victims on campus don't report the crime. Right. So I think that, you know, when it comes to sexual assault, there is this pervasive culture surrounding women where men can, you know, speak however they like to speak. You know, we very often get comments about our bodies. We get comments about our clothes. People mm-hmm. make comments about our hair. People make comments about our height. If we're pregnant, they have comments about that. And so already women are objectified in a way, even if it seems really small, the compounded impact of that when it happens day after day after day after day is that it creates this culture where women are supposed to look good and are supposed to be used mm-hmm. for other people's, either their eyes or for their full-on body contact. Mm-hmm. And so 
it's really important that we speak more about sexual assault. And I chose to do this publicly in my own life, which many women don't. And I'm totally fine that they don't. I think every single person has to find out what is my threshold? What is, what do I feel comfortable and safe sharing? What's good for my soul? What's good for my heart? But for me, I've come to a place in my healing where I want it to be public because I think it's a great opportunity for women to go me too Mm -hmm. and to see themselves in my story and to see that they're not alone and to see that it's not this isolated event, but that this stuff happens all the time to women. Mm -hmm. And the whole community support idea is so important, you know, along with alcoholism that is very often involved in in sexual assaults. Alcohol is very often involved when it comes to campus rapes. But I think this community support idea, I mean, my goodness, everybody at the club next door to our dorm knew that we were all underage. Like you could just look at our baby faces and it's pretty obvious that we're all underage. All the adults who were working in my dorm, um, who were running the front desk and seeing all of us come home drunk as a skunk night after night after night, but never did anything, never tried to hold anybody accountable for it. And so while I don't blame them for my decisions, I do think that we've lost this sort of idea of neighborliness and community in our lives where we are supposed to be looking out there, where we are supposed to speak up, you know, and say something if something is genuinely wrong. Mm. Um, And not to lean to the other extreme where people are calling the cops for all kinds of ridiculous stuff that doesn't make any sense. And then people end up getting really hurt. I mean, that's a whole other issue. But this one right here, if we identify that a club is doing these things, or we identify that, you know, domestic violence is happening in the house right next to us, we have to really be thoughtful and considerate about the next steps and the actions and the responsibility that we have as a community for the lives of those people who are in our midst. It's important. Was your offender brought to justice? No, he was not because I never told. Mm. And um, I didn't want to, I knew I was drunk, you know, to be honest, for several years, I just blamed myself because I was drunk when it happened. And I thought for sure, had I not been drinking, had I not made the choices that I made, maybe I should have never let him in the, in the room where we were partying. Um, Maybe none of this would have happened. So that's part of you know, the silencing tactic is to get people to this place where you feel like it's your fault. But the reality is anybody who decides to take advantage of another person when they are so very clearly unable to make decisions, um, it's it's not that person's fault. So it took me several years to just come out of that. And then I felt like in court, all I've ever seen in the news is women just get utterly destroyed. So yeah. I'm like, man, I don't want to have my whole past come out and then cause this crazy disruption to my family and who has time for a court case, who has resources and money for a court case. So for me, it was just not an option. Well, I'll tell you, that's true for many women. I'll tell you, we had a a case that some of those details sound very similar here in our city. And, um, Mm. it was a college student, a, you know, real popular college student at the university here. And, um, he ended up assaulting a woman who was passed out drunk And I mean, the evidence was clear and he had the resources. He had the means to have two defense attorneys and his, I'll just say it, his privilege got him off from taking responsibility Mm -hmm. for what he did. I mean, I wrote a letter to the judge who I know, and Mm. it was kind of a thing of how does this happen in this justice system? Mm -hmm. You are making women not want to report because here's this girl who didn't ask for this, but she's going to deal with these de- with the, with this trauma for the rest of her life, and he's mm-hmm. going to get off. His record is expunged, and he's going to go and be the guy that won. And yeah. that's not justice, and that's wrong. Yeah, agreed. So after you know this happens, you're obviously left to 
deal with the emotional, physical, I mean, all the compounding trauma that mm-hmm. comes along. And which, when I think about even you being drawn to work um, in justice, it, that, that is kind of the the blessing of trauma in some ways is that mm-hmm. it does give us so much compassion for other survivors. And like, yes. we see it, we know. And, and if we've done any amount of work, um, we can really show up for others in a compassion, in a deep seated, compassionate way that maybe mm-hmm. people who have not experienced, you know, certain traumas um, would have, but Talk a little bit about, like, you said it took, like, 15 years for me to learn to love myself, you know? <laughs> and that what you didn't realize was, like, your problems would follow you everywhere. Like, everywhere you went, <laughs> totally. there your problems <laughs> were, too. Yep. So so how did you how did you heal, you know? Yeah. Gosh, I wish that healing was, like, this... I wish I had this great response if it was, like, I did this, and then I did this, and I did this, and it was, like, woo-wee, I'm healed. And I think... It's, it's a narrative that we hear very often in the Christian faith spaces that I think is it does a disservice to people who are on the healing journey and who have experienced real trauma and even people who haven't because we have this preconceived notion that we can just be healed and it'll be done and over with. And while I do believe that there is some truth to some of that, I also think that it's really important to acknowledge that this is a process that takes a very long time. And Mm. very often when you experience sexual exploitation or you experience sexual assault or going through things like I did with having an eating disorder or dealing with addiction, I think that that stuff starts even from a very early age because we are on this trajectory to sort of determine our value from the time we're very little. Mm. And when you're little, you don't always get to determine what your value is, but rather your value is set by the familial temperature that you're raised in and Mm. some of the cultural temperature that you're raised in. And so what's really powerful about that is that it will sort of train you and lead you into spaces because now for me, not recognizing my value, you know, was part of the reason I was drinking so heavily, Mm. not recognizing my value, not wanting to reckon with the fact that I was like, I had a PhD in pretending, like I was Mm -hmm. so good at wearing a mask. And because of that, my disassociation levels were so high that like after the rape, I woke up the next morning and then I went to work as if nothing had happened to me Mm. and just wanted to keep moving because I knew if I stopped, it would be game over. Like I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I could not allow myself to stop. And I had to stuff that thing somewhere deep down where I'd never had to deal with it. And I hoped that somehow that would make it go away. Mm. So really kind of the catalyst for my healing was when I made the decision with my mom and she stayed in North Carolina, but I moved um, to Los Angeles with her support. And that was actually the real catalyst for my healing. For the first time ever, I showed up and I was like, wow, I don't have to be Ashley who's supposed to get really good grades and Ashley who's supposed to be really good at things. Ashley who's supposed to like hold it all together, but I could just a little bit let myself fall apart. And at first that felt so freeing, but within a matter of months, I was back on addiction, dealing with the eating disorder because everywhere you go, there you are. Like you Mm, can't escape yourself, you know? So I was fortunate enough to meet some believers in Los Angeles who were the least judgmental Christians I had ever met. And they, I was a raging partier. They would come out with me at nighttime, drink Diet Coke, drive me home. And they were inviting me to dinner and inviting me to coffee. And it wasn't contingent on whether or not I was a believer or whether or not I came to their church. And Mm. eventually I asked them, can I come to church with you? I have never met believers this kind. How did you meet them? I met them at my restaurant job and there were five of them on staff 
And one of them was most definitely the like, if you just knew Jesus, if you just knew Jesus kind of Christian. And I was like, back off, you know, yeah. first of all, I met him in 1988, which you would know if you bothered to ask me a single question about my life, you know, <laughs> she's Louise. But the other ones were so gentle and loving and I ended up coming to their faith community. And through that process started the recovery journey. They had something at the church at the time called Monday Night Solutions. And they were going through books like Boundaries and Safe People and Changes That Heal. And I started getting in groups. I started going to group therapy. I started going to regular therapy. I found, I didn't have very much money at the time. So I found a therapist who was getting her clinical hours and working on a sliding scale. And she just had a heart for me. She charged me $10 a session. I came twice a week. Um, And God just really made a way for me to start the healing process. Mm -hmm. And I met some friends because I think that's the other part of it. I mean, you guys would know this from the work that you do, but they talk about how you need wraparound services for someone who is coming out of trauma. And what that means is you need more than one thing to get the job done, right? Right. Like you can't just have one person who's your friend, but a a community and then a therapist and support groups and all the different things. And I had a friend that I met and I remember, gosh, she called me once and I did what I always do. She was like, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. And then I started turning it on her, asking her lots of questions so that I could avoid actually talking about what was wrong with me. (laughs) And she just was... (laughs) That's a, right. It's like a classic eight. Oh move, man, you know? that, we're like, experts oh, at yeah. that. <laughs> right. I'm glad you're resonating with me, Brett. It's a thing. Um, and she just was not buying any of my bull crap. And mm. so she, 10 minutes later comes knocking on my door. And when I opened the door and saw her standing there, I just fell in the floor crying. And for the mm. first time I unpacked my story to like a live human being and shared with her about the rape. And I shared with her about the abortion that I had experienced before I left North Carolina. And I mm. shared with her that I was struggling with an eating disorder. I didn't know if I'd ever be done with this addiction. And as, as she laid in the floor and wept with me, mm. I felt the presence of God in a, the most profound way because I realized as she was not trying to fix me, advise me, heal me, give me five radical steps to healing, she was just with me. Mm. She taught me that God loved me as I am. Mm. He did not intend for me to stay that way, but Mm. he was fine with me where I was. Mm. And that was the kind of love I needed in order to value myself in such a way that I could heal and that I could take the mask off and stop lying to myself and stop lying to everybody else Mm. about how I was really doing, you know? Mm. So that was kind of the catalyst. And then just working the steps, right? Like (laughs) every day I work them. (laughs) I work them every day. (laughs) You know, and and I think what I hear just in your story and in your journey and what I read throughout the book is that you've really had to overcome and you're very vocal about not being a fan of American Christianity. And, and I, I, I think that's refreshing, you know, because yeah. so many of us who have seen brokenness, who have experienced trauma firsthand, it doesn't work. It does not. Right. Black and white faith is actually no faith yeah. at all. I don't even like to yes. say I see things in gray. I'm like, it's color. It's full on right. color up in there. You know, right. it is, there is so much nuance to faith and to mm-hmm. mystery. And where I believe you make this shift in the book, I think I texted you about this, but I'm like, uh-oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a shift when you start talking about this chapter called The Truth About Trauma. And it happens yeah. to me in my perception, you know, I'm ze- I'm not <laughs> I'm not any kind of book editor, but I will tell you, there's a shift that happens here. And it's yeah. about on page 76 where you start talking about 
faith and suffering, that faith mm-hmm. has to grow in suffering. There are no mm-hmm. easy answers, no firm ways forward, no mm-hmm. instant outcomes. Mm-hmm. And you say that, you know, that God just doesn't care about our individual salvation, but the way we operate in community as well. And yeah. so here's what I want to ask you is can you talk to us about what embracing your own suffering meant to a hurting world? So I think embracing suffering, what that means to a hurting world is that we acknowledge that we're all in this thing together and that we don't have to chase the victory all the time, but Mm. that actually life is full of suffering. And as a matter of fact, what really got me is I actually started reading my Bible instead of just allowing people to teach it to me, Mm. but I actually started reading my Bible and I realized there is not a life in there I would want. I would not choose <laughs> Esther's life, right? Like, would I you would you just say that America. again, please, for for our there brothers and sisters life, out there? <laughs> there is not a life in the entire Bible that I would want, guys. I just mm-hmm. wouldn't. Like, I don't want to be put in a basket as a baby to hope that I'm not one of the the kids under two that gets killed like Moses. Mm-hmm. I do not want to be in a harem like Esther. I do not <laughs> want to be thrown in a fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. I do not want to live this life of Paul where I was absolutely slaughtering Christians and then suddenly I'm called to lead them. Like mm-hmm. nobody wants these lives, mm-hmm. but we often talk about all the outcomes. Like Paul did this, this, and this, and he wrote that New Testament. And Esther freed all the people and Moses part of the Red Sea. And it's like, mm. guys, we're missing the theme here, which is that life is not awesome most of the time. <laughs> and that's not a doomsday message. It's not like, wow, Ashley just really needs to stop being so negative. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, actually, most people, if they really get honest with you, are going through some type of hell. Mm-hmm. They really are. Mm-hmm. If they will just like level with you and get honest. And I've seen it again and again and again. And so I think it's important for us to stop chasing this sort of like victory overcoming mindset. Although it is possible to have victory and it is possible to overcome, but there will be suffering. Well, you you walk back into suffering. Do you, do you think, do you think the church makes a space for people to be their authentic self on the whole? You know, I'm, I think that there are churches that do, so I don't want a broad stroke, but I think the general witness in the media, like what people take in about Christians and about church, the answer to that is no. Um, and we don't often make space for grief, right? And we don't often make space for recovery. And and we're kind of get the message that we fix ourselves first and that if you have a relapse or you struggling with thinking about cheating on your spouse or you're struggling with having integrity in your finances at work, like if you're struggling with racism, that there's no place for you to talk about that in the church and there's no place for you to work that out. But in fact, it should be the very place where we're able to work that out and we're able to own our story and admit the sin in our life because every person, no matter who you are, I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 80 years, like everybody has character flaws and nobody's perfect in this life until we meet Jesus. You know, Mm -hmm. the Bible is very clear about that. And so I think it's really important for us to constantly relate to each other as broken people, not who are, you know, we're broken because we just want to be broken, but just like, hey, we're people who make mistakes and your mistakes are welcome here and your Mm -hmm. character flaws are welcome here because this is the place where you go to work them out. You know, I'm I'm, um, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I, and next month, I'm doing a conference uh, in another city 
uh, talking about the demand issue um, that that's plaguing our nation as regards to commercial mm. sex. And so yes. I'm doing two seminars uh, that'll be about six hours each, and and it's for mm. pastors. And mm. one of the things that I've been wrestling with, because the way that I facilitate this stuff is is very, um, how shall we say, uh, it's just upfront. Um, it's not Christianized, if you will. Yeah. Because um, we, we need to approach these issues as such and, and understand yes. just how drastic, how harmful, how terrible they are, and how easily uh, any of us uh, have the capacity to be a part of. And so right. I've had the thought, though, we're going to talk about subjects that if any of the men, and let me emphasize men because women weren't invited, um, <laughs> if any of the men in these seminars choose to admit to some of the things that we're talking about, uh, say porn, for instance, yes. I know a lot of churches who you you would lose your job over that. That's right. I mean, You're right verse, about that. Versus making it a space for, hey, guess what? You're a pastor and you have issues too. And so we're going to come around you as the church, even though you're leading, we're going to come around you and make a space for you because you belong here. No, here's what we're going to do. If you look at porn, we're going to fire you because that means you have now defaulted on your, um, on your ministry calling. And, and I I just, Mm -hmm. I so struggle with that. And I keep thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to navigate these waters? Cause I don't want somebody to get fired, but I want somebody to get freed. You know, and if if you're struggling with porn, then just own that in the safest place because you can't you can't move forward in restoration until you embrace your own story. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing in the church? What are we doing, Ash? Come on. What are we doing? (laughs) Listen. Hey, look, I'll be asking that question like 24-7. Jeez. I love what you're saying too. I mean, that's going to be so powerful, so freeing, so life-giving for them. And I also think what's so powerful about that is that, you know, when you desire freedom and you desire to be out of shame and out of silence and out of hiding, it doesn't really matter what the repercussions are, even though they're drastic. Like Mm -hmm. I've had to suffer many times to be like, this is where I'm at and this is what I'm dealing with. And it has cost me things, Mm -hmm. but what what kind of price are we going to put on freedom? You know, like, are we going to trust God to get free, even if that means I have to lose my job, which right. hopefully none of these men will. Well, yeah. I'm going to trust that God will be good to them. But like, look, what's it, what's it going to cost? Like, is my freedom worth it? Yes, it is. Is my freedom in marriage and intimacy worth it? Yes, it is. Yeah. If I have to lose my job to get it, then I have to lose my job to get right. it. And Man. I think believers have to get to that place where it's like, God, I'm going to be free no matter what it costs me, because I know at the end of this thing, you are good. And I'm going right. to trust that you're good through the whole process and that you do good and that you'll do good for me. So God, I will trust you with my freedom. And Gosh. I think that more believers have to get there. That reminds me of that Stephanie Gretzinger song, Come Out of Your Come Out of Hiding yeah. You're Safe Here. Yes. Yeah. And you say yes. that, Ash, that in the in the book you talk about our suffering being sacred to God. Yes. And, and I think that because we serve a, a, a savior who suffered, and yeah. and that is the 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 point of the resurrection. He was resurrected from suffering so our suffering right. and we're woven into this story and our suffering is so sacred but we don't trust him we don't value yeah. our freedom over getting fired because what we really value mm. is power 
and our own ability to make provision for ourselves rather than trusting God to meet yeah. our needs. And so, you know, it it really taps on um, protecting our ego, protecting our image, protecting our resources, yes. um, and, and our ultimately security. security, power, position. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't value freedom ultimately because we we don't trust God. We don't trust that, like you said, God's good and our suffering truly is sacred, truly yes. is sacred to God and is, yes. is the pathway to intimacy there. Yes. Yeah. It it really is. I mean, God is close to the brokenhearted and we see him again and again and again show up in our weakness. His name is Emmanuel, God, God with us. And so he doesn't make his bed in a super high place. Like, yes, he created heaven and earth and everything in the universe and all that we see. And at the same time, he's, he's in us. He lives with us. He's among us. And I think because of that, we can trust God. Mm. And there is this um, fear that all of us have about security. And I think it it directly impacts what kind of image we put on. So whether we want to be secure in our finances or secure in our position, mm. or even secure in how we look to others in whatever environment we're in, it leads us to put this image on. So I contend that we never really have security, that the only thing unchanging is Jesus Christ. He's the only rock that can't be shaken. He is the only only thing that doesn't change. And so I think because of that, we have to recognize at any point, our security could be stripped. At any point, we could lose our resources. At any point, a tornado could hit our house and our house is gone. At any point, something could happen to totally shake our world. And so that isn't to cause more fear, but what that does is actually help us recognize what our security is really in so that when things do change or we do have to suffer or we do have to come forward with something that might be happening in our life that could have drastic consequences, we can trust that our security is in God, that it is not in what we can give. It is not in what we can provide. It is not in who we are, but is in who He is and that that's worth it. Like, it's worth it to trust God that He is our security, that He is our stronghold, not us. We don't have the power to hold all this together. <laughs> like we do not actually have the power. <laughs> and I, I think that is the the message, the the true heart of the message of faith. I mean, right? Because yes. because faith means I have to trust something greater than myself. Yes. And and that something is Christ which is actually in me, the hope of glory. Yes. So I learned to trust yeah. myself because I learned to trust the voice of Christ in me. Um, but I think sometimes what we're putting out into the world as far as what faith looks like is kind of this genie in a bottle type mm-hmm. faith that is about quick mm-hmm. fixes and it is focused on the resurrection and the transformation and mm-hmm. transformation is a process that is refined yes. by suffering, which yes. activates faith, right? Come on. And so when yes. we are suffering and when we're transforming and we're in that process, it activates and tests our faith, which is what yes. is always happening, right? Yes. And so, yeah, you you say also that this kind of transition, that there is a loss of control and and mm-hmm. that it that it looks messy but that one thing is sure that we have to still have this table available that there's mm-hmm. this table of remembrance and there's this table that we feed and we offer um, to others and to the world so just talk about that image of the table for us 
Yes. Well, you know, I think so often throughout scripture, we see Jesus eating. Like I, I think the Bible is really for foodies. Like there is this whole like <laughs> it's very narrative that's happening. It is. It really is important. And I love looking through the different tables that are in the Bible. But one specifically that stands out to me is, um, you know, when Jesus is creating this, the last supper with his disciples and it's John 13 through 17. And man, it is so life-giving and powerful to understand the context and the backdrop of this because they are underneath Roman rule. So it's a very, oppressive society. Women had no rights. If you had a sickness, you had no rights. If you were not a certain type of person, you had no rights. If you had no wealth, you had no rights. And so there's this whole thing happening where most people are oppressed and dealing with a very difficult government. There's a refugee crisis happening. There's sexism. There's racism. There's all these things that are the cultural landscape. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they're about to lose the very person they put their whole life in. Many of them left their businesses. They left their jobs to just follow after this. Like, he's the guy and he's about to go to the cross and die. Mm. And so I think they're sitting at this table and what I believe Jesus is trying to communicate to us through his, through this long message that he gives them, this beautiful dialogue where he's teaching them how to live and how to be in this world, how to be together, how to be with God. What I think he's trying to teach them is the table is such a sweet respite. It makes Mm. me go to tears every time Mm. because when you have no control in your life and you have no control over you know, maybe you just suffered a great, a, a severe loss. Maybe mm-hmm. you just lost somebody in your life, or perhaps you are really trying to figure out this road out of addiction, or maybe your relationships feel like they're on the rocks. There's something about sitting at the table together that just humanizes us and mm-hmm. levels the ground. Or it's like, mm-hmm. I'm here with you in my shared need. And let's like have a respite and let's talk about life and let's, or don't, let's just eat together and be together. And I think Jesus was really trying to teach his disciples, hey, when when you feel lost, come here. Yeah. And I believe he proves that even after he dies, he's resurrected, he comes back. And what does he do? Yeah. He invites them to sit down and have a meal with him. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing he does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, come eat with me. I want to make you some fish. And he mm-hmm. cooks for them. And so we see this beautiful thing where God's like in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your lack of control in the midst of your misunderstanding, come sit with me. Mm. And I think that's how God designs us to commune with Him, but He also is asking us to create these safe respites, these safe places for others. Mm -hmm. And if we were to do that, I think we would have a different world. I know Mm. for sure Mm. believers would have a different witness. I know that for sure. Right. Amen to that. I love that. That I love that you brought forward that that theme of table. Mm. One of my favorite yeah. table scenes in scripture is with Jesus and Zacchaeus. Mm. And the fact that he goes so and, and and he sits down with this guy who's the scum of the earth and he says I'm going to your yeah. house and I want to eat at your table. You know, it's the most intimate thing you can do next to mm-hmm. having sex. You have this brotherly mm-hmm. love, you know, you sit down and break bread together. And I just, yeah, I'm so on that page with yeah. you mm-hmm. that so many things can be handled or discussed or explored yes. across the table because you're right. At, when yeah. we all sit at the table, we're all equal. We're mm-hmm. all at the same plane. That's we're right. eating the same food. And yeah. thank you, Jesus, for that. Dad, right. it. <laughs> well, and in the story of Zacchaeus, you know, there's some tables throughout scripture that Jesus prepares right and then there's yeah. some that he says i'm coming to your house like i want yeah. to eat at your table and the fact yes. that christ comes to 
take up residence in us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And yes. and makes home in us is just the ultimate act of mutuality and yes, and relationship. And that is we just you talk about this in here too, just the hierarchy structure that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're obsessed with, and we are, and then the church is obsessed with, and we we end up as Christ followers. Um, that gets us in a lot of trouble with with a hurting world and with people who've had power taken away, who who yes. can't come with power and who can't come with any kind of authority or hierarchy or status. Um, yeah, so the, so the table levels that you it know. does, and that example of Jesus, you know, like even if you want to look at Zacchaeus, like me as a person who grew up without wealth and a, and without means, like people who had a lot of money were very often the very people who made fun of me or made fun of my family or said mean things about my extended family members because we didn't have what they had or whatever it might be. And so when I think about Zacchaeus, like at first I'm like, are you kidding me, God? Mm. Like, are you going to go to that guy's house? Like, look what he's doing to our whole town. Are you mm. kidding me? And I feel like every time I think I have this thing with justice figured out, right? Like Jesus flips it on his head and he's like, hey, <laughs> Not only have I come for the broken, but like I actually need Zacchaeus to be well because he holds the keys. Like, yes, both things have to be fixed. So, this sort of like restorative justice yep. that Jesus does, where he's concerned about both sides of the coin because he knows how they hurt each other. Mm. And so, I, I, I feel so deeply challenged by the life of Jesus. And mm. I feel so deeply challenged in my walk with justice because I find myself, you know, wanting to hate certain people groups because mm. I'm like, you know what? It's your fault. You're doing this. Mm. It's, it, it's you guys. You know, and I, I could do that if I allowed myself. But when I look at scripture, I find that I don't, God doesn't tolerate that. Like as a disciple, if I'm supposed to do as he does, then I have to actually open my heart to people that normally would feel like an enemy to me, that normally maybe wounded me. <laughs> I think that, I think that's because Jesus knows the other side of the story. So like he, he knows Zacchaeus is going to give it all back after dinner. That's right. You know what I mean? And it's like, I think, I think about the guys that I, the the sex buyers that I teach every month. And I think, you know, at first, oh my gosh, these are the repugnant people of our society. And I come in this room and and I hear all of their stories and I can get in with a space of empathy with them. And it's not about, they were just horny or whatever. I mean, like there's, there's a story for each of them. It doesn't, it doesn't bless it, but it's like, okay, I see why you're here. And then and then I'm surprised when one of them comes up at the end and says, hey, how can I give back to this class? Yeah. I would never think in a million years one of these guys would ever say, hey, I want to give back to this. And so it's like we, it's almost hmm. like we cut people short when, right. they're, when they're in a certain kind of sin that, you know, that we, you know, we're on the justice side of women over here. And yet, yeah. how do we get on the justice side for the men as well? Hmm. That's and, right. And Jesus is the only one who shows us that. Like, because, you know, Zacchaeus yeah. doesn't make sense. Like, Zacchaeus should be put in jail. But totally. Jesus is like, hey, bro, <laughs> we're going to eat, and he's going to give it all back, and he's going to be That's good. Right. And who knows, yeah. like, did, did because we can't do it for the outcome. Right. Because Jesus would go either so way to the woman who stays married to the five so men that she lived with, right? We don't do it because we think, oh, she's going to go and not do this anymore. Right. That, that's right. That isn't the reason that Jesus goes. Right. But it is transformative. What I love about Martin Luther King is he's like, hey, the reason Jesus says love your enemies 
is because hate can't transform your enemy, but love right. has a redemptive property to it. Love yes. has the power to redeem, whereas hate can't. Hate just multiplies hate, but love yes. has a transformative power that is innate it to it that can actually change hearts. I wish we could get that in us in today's culture. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I do too. And I think story helps us understand context, which is something I think you're both talking about because you have more empathy when you understand context. Yeah. And story really gives us that. It's like, oh, I can, what you're doing is so unacceptable at the same time, given your life, it's so understandable. Right. Totally. And yeah. so I think that that makes us have a more empathetic love and compassion towards one another that we really need when mm. it comes to love. I agree. Um as you kind of progress throughout the the book and you start talking about issues of your work with the suffering and, and mass incarceration, and I mean, you go there. You talk about privilege. Mm-hmm. You talk about um, that the world isn't a kind or safe place um, to women and nor to to people of color and just the, yeah. the hardship that, um, that honestly... These positions of having resources, right? Money, money yes. does change things, which is it why does. on our end with JSL, you know, creating jobs for women is essential yeah. who are leaving yes. the industry. It can't just be, oh, just, just have community, just, you know, just love them and, you know, let's have a community meal, kumbaya moment. It's like, no, right. love, <laughs> love is boots on the ground. Like yes. love is also changing some of these, um, macro level issues. So you get then to this point where you you talk about how we have so much more in common than yeah. we realize and that it, as Christ followers you give these really beautiful you say um there are three things that we're going to be judged by that we're judged by our love that we're judged by the fruit that we bear and we're judged by unity. Mm-hmm. And so Loving others, bearing fruit, and bringing about unity on the earth. Those are hugely needed right now. Uh How do we do this? (laughs) Like, how do we, how are we doing this, right? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a massive question. And I think, um, you know, there's so much talk about systems and structures in this book because they really do matter. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, we have to sort of bring it all down to my life. Like, what am I actually doing to honor God? What am I actually doing to walk in love? And do I really fully understand what love means according to Christ? Not according to what a pastor taught me, not according to what I think might be good for the world, but like according to Christ, what really is love? Mm -hmm. And then how do we bear fruit? You know, so often we talk about that. And what many Christians mean when they think about bearing fruit is that they get stuff or they have stuff or they do things. Mm. And and actually, when you're born again, you receive the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That is actually what we're supposed to be bearing. That mm. is the evidence that you are born again and that Christ lives in you. So when you are patient, when, when you really don't want to be, and when you are faithful, even when you don't want to, and when you operate in self-control and when you have humility, like these are the things that are a witness to the world. And Mm -hmm. as Christians, we have to pay attention to that. It's not the things that I get. It's not the circumstances I'm in. It is God, am I bearing fruit in this place, even Mm -hmm. if I don't want to be here? And then unity, you know, unity is a really powerful thing, but you know, being unified about the wrong thing is not good. Like you look Mm -hmm. at the Tower of Babel, God Mm -hmm. was 
was good with them getting together, doing their thing. He was not good with them deciding in their unity to make a name for themselves. Mm. And you think about people like David Duke of the KKK, or you Mm. think about somebody like Adolf Hitler and many more that we could name. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of unity, Mm. but they are unified about white supremacy. And Mm. that is a sin. Racism Mm. is a sin. Mm. And so even if you're unified about the wrong things, it doesn't make it right. So unity is not assimilation and it is not chasing things that are are helping you at the expense of others. Mm. So unity in Christ is recognizing like we're all diverse. We are beautifully made, whatever our skin color, whatever our background, whatever our economic status, whatever our social status. And hey, we can all be in this thing together. Mm. We don't have to agree about everything, but we have to have this common undergirding of love Mm. and this common practice of walking in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And in that we discover our shared goals in Christ, which is to love one another and love God. Hey, I have a question. Have Go you, for it. Have you been uh, have you been keeping up with this John MacArthur Beth Moore thing? Of course. Mm. I mean, are you under a rock if you are not? I'm just I'm just checking. <laughs> I'm just checking. So my question is, if you had an opportunity, what would you say to John MacArthur? Oh my gosh. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm not even sure I would want to have a conversation with the guy. Fair I mean, point. I. I mean, that's just the bottom. It's like, I don't have time to waste in my life trying to convince people of things that are laid out so clearly in scripture. I don't have Mm. time to argue with this dude. I don't have time to try to convince him after 50 years of ministry that he's wrong. Like, Mm. I don't even want to waste my time. But what I do want to do is continue to preach the good news and continue to teach people and continue to empower other female and male voices who are walking in unity and loving Christ and bringing Mm. the kingdom forward. Like, for me, I'm going to spend my energy there versus, you know, this guy who believes whatever he believes. I I think that, you know, in this culture, you guys know it so well. We have the cancel culture and we have the social media calling out culture. And, you know, sometimes I'm here for it. I'm like, I need to hold my tongue sometimes, but like, sometimes I'm like, yeah, let's call you out. But what that does, unfortunately, is we waste so much time and give so much of our energy to like trying to convince people of something we know is true. And for me and my household, we're like, you know what? I don't even have time to fool with this dude. Like, I got to keep it moving. I'm not going to stop preaching. John MacArthur is not in charge of my purpose. Like, bye. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, yeah. and, I, and I think for I think for me, because, um, I, you know, I'm not an Enneagram 8 that, that can so quickly move on, I... I I, I do feel like I told Brett yesterday, I was like, I know I'm getting over strep, but like there's a lot that's blasting against my gut today. Yeah. Like I just right. palpably feel the grief and the division and, mm. and it, it's weighty. And so, so for me, it's like, hmm. how do I um, not harbor such hatred and resentment against this yeah. reformed theologian, um, movement of whatever convention people and to be fair that's his version of that there are there are i know i know some reformed folks who do not think about women in such a despicable manner hmm. there's a few of them that's I mean, comforting it's not yeah. a lot i mean but be honest well, and, lot, and but or maybe that would great. say or maybe that would say that they do right but I, they may right have ideas that are yeah misogynistic totally I, but I would yeah. say this, even as just as a man, I think what grieved me so deeply was yeah. how much it was a joke. Right. Beth oh, Moore totally. 
is not a joke. Right. She not at all. is no a daughter is. of the king who has been asked to go and share her life, give her life uh-huh. away for the king, and to have yep. it mocked by some old guy on a stage with a right. bunch of other people, other men, and to hear their laughter. It was so... I mean, I had a bodily response when I listened to it as a man yeah. Of, yeah. of just how disgusting and contrary to Jesus they were doing in that moment. Yeah. And, and yeah. Then to continue on down his line of, you know, she needs to go home and that nowhere in scripture can you defend that a woman should ever preach. I'm just right. like, man, we must have different versions well, or and, something. Well, and truly, totally. yeah, and and I think that is the hard part of what's happening right now. And, and it's like, how do we bring... Unity, mm-hmm. and and so, like what you're suggesting, and I think there's wisdom here is that we can we continue to pursue unity with with those um, who desire unity, and we continue to preach and live the truth of love. We we continue to focus and live out mm-hmm. that truth. Um, which does speak against hate, but we're not necessarily getting wrapped up in this continual, like throwing energy toward the evil. Yeah. And I think also like in this particular case, for me, it was like, I've always known this. Like I've always known that he thinks this, like Mm. it was not surprising to me. Mm -hmm. This is how men have been in so many spaces. And I say that very gently because I think about you, Brett, or I think Mm. about my husband and so many other men that I know who are just like the most Jesus loving men you can meet. Right. And at the same time, I'm like, I've always known this dude was like this. Like he's been acting this way his whole ministry career. Mm -hmm. And so to your point about how do we find unity, it's like, well, I don't see evidence of love in what Mm -hmm. happened in that room. And I actually don't see joy and I don't see peace and I don't see patience and I don't see, you know, I don't see faithfulness when it comes to the call on women's lives. Like, so when I look at that, I'm like, okay, that's not, you know, maybe God could change my heart. Something drastic could happen. Who knows? But at the same time, that's not someone who's going to be at the table building the kingdom forward in the way that I believe the Lord would have me do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think each of us are called to the spaces that we're called to. Each of us are required by God to build where we are um, and to keep our focus there and to acknowledge like, yeah, some people, this is just not going to change for them. It's just, a, it's not going to change. And I'm, I'm like made my peace with that. You yeah. know, it's always been this way for women. It's the right. world is not safe or kind to women. You know, that's a phrase from my book that I'm so for sure solid on. Yeah. (laughs) It is. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's just, again, hello, rise of the truth teller. I mean, it's just the truth. It's just the truth. And, um, I, well, Ash, I really am grateful that you have spent time with us today and really that you've taken so much thought and time into what you have poured into this book. I can, sense, and I I said this before we started recording, but I can sense the tension as you um, really walk between loving the church and and really calling it to become more. Um, Mm. And so I can can feel Mm. that tension, and I thank you for your wisdom, for your honesty, for your vulnerability. So tell our listeners, where can they get the book and where can they find you if they want to know more? 
Absolutely. Well, first, before I do that, I just want to thank both of you for the work that you're doing and for the opportunity to come on this podcast. Like I loved this conversation. And so I'm so thankful for how you think about the world and how you love others. Um, So if you want to get the book, you can actually get it wherever books are sold, your local Barnes and Nobles, or you can pick it up online, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, christianbooks.com, or you can go to my website, which is just ashabercrombie.org. And I'm the most active on Instagram and that's just at ashabercrombie. So if you want to connect, I would love love to connect with you and hear from you. Do you answer your DMs or does someone else do that for you? <laughs> I told oh please. I mean, wouldn't that be a dream? I'm a one woman show over yes. here. And yeah, I will definitely respond to that. A true to eight would never turn their DMs over to anyone else. <laughs> I guarantee so it. <laughs> Brad, I feel so seen. I love it. I love it. Well, next next time you're in Texas, you need to come to Waco. We need to, to show yes. you a good time down yes. there. Yes, and if we're That's in if we're in Manhattan, um, we'd love to connect with you there if we can get up to that fun city. Boy, we do for that. I would love oh, to have that too. place. <laughs> me too. Well, Ash, we'll see you down the road, and thanks again for this conversation and for your time. Yep. Best wishes. Thank you. All right. Thank share you. the love. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. Yes. Because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info. And visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.